Great. Thank you. Thank you. I was just getting kicked out here. Somebody, somebody nicely let me stay up 10 minutes longer in this conference. I have a dream. This nation will rise up, live out the true meaning of its creed. We hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created. The strongest job growth on record, the largest decline in unemployment on record. Stronger small business growth in a long time. With all due respect, that's a bunch of malarkey. I've said it before and I'll say it again. Democracy simply doesn't work. Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. It's the Ricochet Podcast with Peter Robinson and Rob Long. I'm James Lilacs, and today we talk to Amy Ziegert about spies like us and like them. So let's have ourselves a podcast. I can hear you! Welcome, everybody. This is the Ricochet Podcast, episode number 578. Join us at ricochet.com. Why don't you? And you can be part of the most stimulating conversation and community as well on the web. I'm James Lilix, Minneapolis, where it's warmed up to minus one. Doesn't feel that bad. It's dry, cold. Peter Robinson in Clement, California. Rob Long in exciting Gotham. Gentlemen, how are you today? I'm a little grumpy. Uh, oh, but good. I'll get over it. Good. We we like grumpy Peter. Just about the world or something in well, particular? Well, no, something, something in particular. My cardiologist, I grew up in a time and place, I don't know about you fellows, where doctors were demigods and surgeons were gods and a cardiologist was Zeus himself. Mm-hmm. And my cardiologist said, well, your heart's in good shape, but get a whoop. Do you know what this thing is? This whoop that you wear and it tells you when you're in good condition and should work out hard and when you're in bad condition and monitors you. I got up this morning, thought to myself, well, I slept like a baby. I looked at the whoop. It said I slept less than two and a half hours. Meanwhile, it's been accumulating this sleep deficit. Uh, if it- Wait, uh, so how does the whoop know? The whoop checks heart rate, respiration, and ha- on, on paper, it's just the kind of thing both of you would love because it applies... No techie algorithms <laughs> to the work of staying fit, knowing when you should work out hard, knowing when you have a resting day. In theory, it's perfect. And I have, I'm going back and forth with a whoop specialist now to adjust the algorithm to my sleep. Anyway, Sounds it's just dreadful. a little, you Sounds get up dreadful. and say, wow. I don't need any of that information. I, I don't need well. any of that information. You don't? I don't know. Even if a cardiologist tells you to do it? I, perhaps so, but my watch periodically tells me to breathe. It's like, you know what? I got the whole autonomous nervous system thing <laughs> figured out. Yeah, Fair enough. Of, I'm, Fair I'm enough. good with that. And it, it, when it warns me about this or it it it, uh, it, it jibes, it's, no, I don't need that granular level of information. I'll be fine. My father did not have such a watch, and he proceeded to uh, stroll through nine decades of life. And oh. Rob, you and uh, I have, so uh, I, was, I, I, I do have, you, I have, I, I have sleep cycle. Peter. Oh, so wait, well, Would what's you, that? Well, it's a, it's an app and you put it on your phone and you put your phone next to your bed and then it kind of listens to you. And then you wake up in the morning and it literally gives you a, a, a number grade of your sleep. So out of a hundred percent. So the, right. the, the thing, the problem with it is that in order for it to work, you have to have the phone by the bed, right? Uh-huh. But your life is so much better without your phone by your bed. Correct. Uh, that well, I suspect I'm a, I, that not having yeah. it is better. I'm a married man. I don't need somebody else to judge me. Okay. You know, <laughs> also, like so, one more area in which you're like, oh, by the way, you're failing at sleep. You don't do that you're well. You're right. I think I can, when I get up, I can tell exactly how it's been by the alacrity right. and the, with which I swing my feet upon the floor. Well, um, <laughs> or not. 
or not. Or not. Yes, there's a, there's always that. Um, so we have um, in the news, Breyer has decided to step down, which led to a whole lot of clever ice cream jokes, actually, on the Internet. Uh, and uh, this was done sort of around him. He had was not ready to say so, but somebody rushed that out there. And the assumption now that I'm reading from the left side of the web is that the Republicans will block everything that Biden tries to do. You think that's going to be the case or they're just going to say, uh, yeah, 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 it's his choice. Let it go. Should we do this before an election? There's an election coming up after all. <laughs> yeah, you know, right, right. Well, there's I, I, always an election coming up in America. Our friend Mickey Kaus, I thought, Briar, I'm just looking at Twitter a moment or two before trying to sleep last night. Apparently, I failed. And Mickey Kaus put up a post that stopped me cold because it's Mickey being Mickey. And he said, hey, wait a minute. Briar laid out very specific conditions in his formal announcement I will retire at the, when the court shall rise from the current session, assuming that the Senate will re retain its present uh, partisan representation and that my successor will have been nominated and confirmed. Okay. That he said, I will step down under conditions X, Y, and Z. Conditions X, Y, and Z have not been met. Therefore, there is no vacancy on the Supreme Court, therefore, argues Mickey, reading the text of the Constitution in a very straightforward way, the president may not nominate anyone to fill the vacancy when the vacancy doesn't exist. And I thought, whoa, leave it to Mickey to ask a <laughs> yeah. law school 101 question here, Const right. con law 101. Hey, wait a minute, fellas. Right. There's no vacancy. He laid out quite like specific conditions which have not been met. Sounds like a Mobius strip that, that yes, you know, it does. That, that, it does. that's the belt drive for a perpetual motion machine. Maybe that's why I slept so badly last night. It was going round and round in my head. That is interesting. Well, of course, you know, uh, the, um, the resignation letter is not a, a, a legally binding. It's not as if he's like, so the most interesting thing about it is the suggestion that I think that there will never be, if, if Breyer can avoid it, there will not be an eight person court. Right. Right. That's what he's saying is that it'll never I'll never let it go to eight. I'm not going to run out the door and then just let this let the bonfire happen. Yeah. What, what he means um, is I'll never let the conservatives achieve a three to one majority, even for a right. moment. Not for a moment. Uh, but I suspect his problem is going to be, I mean, you know, I, I he wakes up in the morning, eats his cornflakes, drinks his coffee and reads the paper like anybody else, I suspect, and sees that there's probably no chance that the court is going that the sorry that the Senate is going to be more amenable, right, to the Democrats or to liberals than it is right right at this minute. And if you're <laughs> once again, if you're the Democrats, all eyes on essentially Mansion. I don't know about Cinema, essentially Mansion, because he's still a Democrat. He's a very conservative Democrat. That the the kind of justice he's going to feel comfortable right. voting for is going to be the kind of justice that liberal republicans with a democratic senate or moderate republicans democratic senate nominate um <laughs> somebody designed to infuriate the conservatives but also totally infuriate the liberals uh, mm -hmm. and, and so it, 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 threading the needle will be really interesting. Um, interesting on the other hand it's a it's an easy way for manchin to say hey, listen i'm still on the team uh, so he could, uh, but there's no reason why Manchin should not betray Republicans. He's not a Republican, but um, 
he could easily. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's and, and we all know who it's going to be too, right? Oh, we do. Oh, it's going to be Kamala. It's going to be Kamala no, Harris. I, I think Bill Crystal oh, wow. said Kamala Harris. Kamala Harris goes on the uh, Supreme Court, that and is, then and then Joe Biden picks Mitt Romney as, as his vice president, straightforward so from here. It, and that's all, how we that's how we knit the nation. It's politically, it's fascinating. There's also this piece of interest that Justice Breyer, right up until yesterday, was viewed as the high-minded liberal on the court. He gave a lecture at Harvard a few months ago, I think it was last autumn, in which he decried any notion that the court acted out of any political considerations whatsoever. This got wide coverage. It was praised in the editorial pages <laughs> of the Wall Street Journal. And now in his leave-taking, he is being as straightforwardly political as anyone has ever been. I'm out now, but only if the composition of the Senate doesn't change, and only if you fellas nominate and confirm my successor, implicitly somebody of whom I approve, and then I'll step down. It's, mm -hmm. it is as, it is as, I mean, he is being, playing as straightforwardly, he is as coy yeah. as coy can be. Furthermore, the interest in all this, I, you mentioned Manchin, I'd keep an eye on, on Mitt Romney as well. I could easily see Manchin refusing to vote for a Democratic nominee and Romney saying, oh yeah, go ahead, they deserve their guy or their woman. This will be fascinating. Somebody yeah, also pointed I, out, if, yeah. if, if Bernie Sanders has a stroke and departs this veil of tears, the governor of, New Ham of Vermont rather, is a Republican and could be expected to appoint a Republican to, to, to fill out the remainder of Bernie Sanders. I'm not suggesting Bernie Sanders is... Wait a minute, what? You in any here? Absolutely. I mean, I don't know. Authoritarianism, right there, rule by decree, end of our democracy. If that happens, we'd have to speak to Bernie Sanders as a cardiologist, I guess. Since we're talking about cardiologists, I hope he's not wearing whoop. <laughs> Show us Bernie's whoop. Yeah, um, it's all kind of fascinating. This, this is sort of fascinating, weird little chess, a three-dimensional chess, four-dimensional chess. Uh, <laughs> what makes it so ludicrous or so hilarious, depending on side you're on? or so terrifying, I guess, if you're a Democrat, is that the people in charge right now of strategizing and strategizing this are the Biden administration, who yeah, seems exactly. to be incapable of making a speech, passing a bill, uh, getting above 33% popularity. It's, it, this seems to be the, the... There is no area in which the Biden administration has shown competence. Competence, maybe just competence. This is, maybe this is... Maybe this is the area, but I, I suspect not. I suspect right. not. My closing comment on all this is, and this is more horrifying than anything else I can conceive of, in the comment section, we are certain to get ricochet listeners saying, fellas, you've got to get John, John Yu on the podcast next week to sort all this uh, out for you. I guess we do, yeah. Uh, you're right. Oh, uh, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. Here, here, here oh, we go. Okay. Oh, I well, wonder, also, is he available? I wonder if he'll... Oh, give me a break. There have been mutterings, actually, <laughs> that the person that they choose may not be chosen specifically for their legal knowledge, but that, the, that, uh, that ethnicity and gender may play a, a deciding role. I know that sounds, sounds crazy, but what do you James, guys think about that? That would be outrageous. Well, it's, well, it's also a, a very strange kind of, uh, uh, this is a sort of classic, um, I don't know, what is it, Catch-22? Depends on, I guess, on how you think about it. But the idea that you've announced ahead of time who you're going, the, 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 the complexion and the right. background of who you're going to nominate without naming a name. And then people say, well, you really shouldn't do that. You shouldn't, shouldn't, it shouldn't matter. And then you turn on those people and say, oh, what are you, a bigot? Right, right. Well, no, I'm just <laughs> quite saying, kind of saying the opposite. Um, 
and you know, uh, and just to, I mean, he said he wanted to nominate a black woman. Um, mm-hmm. But just like, just assume he had said something else, like, I'd like to nominate an Asian man. Just another, just designating another ethnicity that is a growing ethnicity in America, probably growing at a faster rate than African Americans. Mm-hmm. Um, imagine, imagine the outrage. Imagine the crazy backtracking they would have to do. Imagine just the, the weird yoga-like gymnastic press release and buyback that they'd have to make um, if he had said that. It's just very, it's just the idea that these well, things are. Yes. Uh, I mean, yeah. I, if he came out and he said, there's all of these cases that are coming to the Supreme Court about the uh, supposed quotas and the denial of opportunity to Asian Americans in the Ivy League schools. Right. And I think it'd right. be very important to have an Asian man there who would bring life experience about that. People, I, yes, heads would explode. And yeah. part of it would be like, well, wait a minute, hold on a second here. He's, he's not going to judge by the law, he's going to judge based on his particular genetic makeup. What, wait, 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 what? I mean, but whether or not the left would say that, I don't know. I mean, the, the left would, would want to say that be, perhaps because they're behind what Harvard and, and Yale are doing. But at the same time, it sort of gives the game away, doesn't it? it, it, I mean, it and I'll tell you, just, just to change the subject slightly, but on the same general topic, the game was given away today, uh, this week in the New York Times. Two NYPD um, officers were shot and killed mm. last week, mm. uh, making a domestic violence St- uh, um, stop in, I think it was East Harlem. Um, they were shot point blank. The guy uh, opened the door and just started firing. That's how that worked. Um, so the idea, of course, but from two years ago, that what we need are different, uh, are police, different police trained differently to respond to these domestic violence things. Well, okay. These were. Uh, if only they'd been how, wearing how, webcams. If only they had had a, a psychology degree, then he. Right. Yeah, so it doesn't matter, right? The New York Times piece on it, which I know came from the place where they wanted to honor these heroes who are both Latino, were both Latino, was the probably one of the most shockingly disgusting pieces I've read in the New York Times. The first three or four or five paragraphs and throughout threaded throughout this two page, almost two page um, uh, obituary, essentially described how both of these Latino gentlemen had experienced uh, police brutality in their own way growing up so the, the the terror on the on the in the deep in the psyche of these new york times reporters is that you may draw the conclusion by the fact that these two latino police officers were shot dead that we need more police you may also draw the conclusion that um, there are dangerous people behind the front door when you knock you may also draw the conclusion that there is a problem with soaring crime in New York City that has nothing to do with Latinos, Asians, white people. You may not like that. That may upset you, but it is nonetheless true. And so the idea of instead of celebrating their heroism and the fact that these guys put on a uniform and face death every day behind a door they did not expect um, is uh, was this meretricious, sniveling, incredibly incredibly uh, uh, backwalking uh, indefensible uh, article designed even more atrociously as a celebration of these two heroes I, it was like it was shocking to read well the city council person for that area I believe made a statement where she and she said to fund the police and, and uh, empty out the prisons person 
uh, made the point that she uh, honored and regretted the loss of life. And in doing so, she named the two cops and the person who shot them as if to, to put them all under the umbrella of gun violence and the uh, hideous capitalist system that we live in that must be dismantled completely, which many people, as Rob did, found to be rather appalling. doesn't make me want to go to New York. It probably doesn't want to make me go to New York because I read a whole bunch of pieces this week about how uh, we have a local Minneapolis pizzeria that is attempting to reproduce New York pizza, which people hold up as the new ultra of pizza. And I think they're absolutely wrong. I'll argue with this until the day I die. New York pizza is nothing special. It has its attributes, but don't tell me that it's the greatest in the world. No, it just isn't. And I know this because I make, I know, I know pizza. It's one of those things that actually gives my life a little extra bounce on Fridays when I have it. It's, 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 it's necessary. Okay. I don't want to say that you should take your pizza to bed, but if you're spending lots of time and attention making sure that your pizza is good, that's an indication that you like your life to be well-ordered and that quality matters and those little details. Like Peter was saying before, sleep. Now, I can only assume that Peter's uh, not sleeping in the room with the bowl and branch sheets if he's only get two and a half hours in, because frankly, when I lie myself down in mine, I'm there for the duration. You don't cut corners on what's important, do you? And few things matter more than a good night's rest. Bowling Branch's signature sheets are so soft, so light, you'll forget you're not actually sleeping on a cloud. And they are sustainably made for uncompromising quality from field to factory. So I love them for a variety of reasons, uh, mainly because the more they're washed, the more they're used, the better they get. Which is, you you can't say that about a lot of things. The more you drive your car, the more it falls apart. The more you wear your jeans, the more they aren't as crisp as they were before. Not these sheets. They get better and better and better every year. They're signature hemmed sheets from Bowling Branch. Branch. They're bestseller for a reason. Buttery, soft, lightweight, organic cotton in a classic sateen weave for sheets that get softer over time. Not too hot, not too cool. The perfect year-round sheets for most sleepers. And Bowling Branch focuses on quality over quantity. No inflated thread counts here because more is not always better. Best of all, Bowling Branch gives you a fair price plus a 30-day risk-free guarantee with free shipping and free returns. So experience the best sheets you've ever felt at Bowling Branch. Get 15% off your first set of sheets when you use the promo code RICOCHET at your checkout. That's Boland Branch, B-O-L-L-A-N-D, branch.com, promo code RICOCHET. And we thank Boland Branch for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. And now we welcome to the podcast Amy Ziegart, professor of political science at Stanford, senior fellow at the Hoover Institution, and a contributor to The Atlantic. She specializes in U.S. intelligence, emerging technologies, and national security, and is the author of five books covering these areas, including the forthcoming Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence. It'll be released on February 1st. Welcome to the podcast. And we have to ask you, um, do you think New York pizza is the best? I'm sorry, no, it's a previous conversation. Won't bother you with that. Um, the intelligence community today, as it stands, now in the old days of spycraft, you know, we had the secret hidden agents, we had the people who were skulking around in the back, taking small, tiny microfilm pictures of key documents. Now it's different. Now it seems as if somebody sitting at a terminal in the West can affect what goes on in the infrastructure in Iran or Russia or the rest of it. So my first question is, knowing virtually nothing about this, how much of our current intelligence posture has gone back from the old ways of collecting information and is relying on new ways and chugging things through algorithms? And does that actually mean that we're better at this or safer? 
Oh, it's great. It's a great question. So the short answer is not enough. How much have we changed? Not enough. So you laid out spying is not what it used to be. And spying isn't even for governments anymore. Right. So when we think about China's nuclear missile silos, for example, which were discovered a few months ago, they were discovered by people who didn't hold security clearances and didn't work for U.S. intelligence agencies. So there's a whole ecosystem now. Anybody with a with a cell phone and an Internet connection can collect and analyze information. So it's a radically different world than it was even 10 years ago. We, we've seen in the last year or two the, the virtually the failure of nearly every institution in government that we thought at least was basically competent. And if there's one thing we've lost a lot of faith in, it's the FBI and the CIA um, for their inability to see something coming, for their flat-footed response. And we think sometimes maybe these institutions are so big that they can't be nimble anymore. That's what we fear. We like to think, because we've seen the movies, that actually they're really good at this. With a lot of very fast typing, they can figure things out. But how far behind the curve are we when it comes to other countries? And is this, I mean, should we be hiring these guys who are making the, the decisions about Chinese missile silos? Or is there some sort of institutional sclerotic inertia that keeps us from moving faster. Look, you know, I'd be the first to say I've criticized the intelligence community for a long time, but it's hard what they do, right? So I'm always reminded of when when Mike Hayden, who led the CIA and the uh, and the NSA, gave a talk years ago in Los Angeles. This is before we found Osama bin Laden. He gave the speech, and the first question in the audience was, "We spend tens of billions of dollars on these intelligence agencies. Why can't you find Osama bin Laden?" And Hayden said, "I'll tell you why." Because he's hiding, right? <laughs> Everyone laughed, but it's a very serious point, which is that this stuff is hard. It is hard to anticipate the future. It's hard for us to anticipate what we're going to do a month from now. So figuring out what Vladimir Putin's up to, what Kim Jong-un is going to do, what Xi Jinping's intentions are, this is hard stuff. So while I'm the first to criticize the intelligence community for failures like 9-11, uh, it's important to bear in mind, as you pointed out, you know, this stuff is looks a lot easier in the movies than it is in real life. And in fact, one of the things I found in my book. And the reason I, I started writing the book was that I found that most Americans actually get their knowledge of intelligence from spy-themed entertainment. And it's become adult education. And that leads to all sorts of expectations, as you pointed out, of you know a little bit of typing and you get the answer. And that has profound implications, even for intelligence policy. So I found examples of policymakers being uh, confirmed for CIA director asked hypothetical questions from Jack Bauer plot lines. Like, this is not good for our country in terms of uh, encouraging good oversight. Um, so, so we're really misled by spy-themed entertainment, I think. Amy, Peter here. First of all, the, the book again is Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, published on February 1st is the pub date. You can pre-order it, as I have, on Amazon. And congratulations, it's getting reviewed everywhere, and it's getting reviewed spectacularly. Spectacularly, yesterday in the Wall Street Journal, Harvey Clare, who is one of the great men of intelligence and one of the leading Cold War historians, gave it a, a, a rave and detailed and thoughtful, but rave review. So, congratulations. If I were you, after this podcast, I'd take the rest of the day off. <laughs> well, thank you, Peter. It's, it's very nice of you to say. And it's always nice to be able to say you've finished writing a book, yes. then you're currently writing yes, a book. Yes, 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 yes. <laughs> so, here's, here's the question. This is rough draft because you and I are going to sit down for an hour and record an episode of Uncommon Knowledge, I believe, in the middle of next month. We're working on a date, in any event. So, this is a rough draft question. I feel that the dividing line in defense 
I'll come to intelligence in a moment. But the dividing line between the Pentagon and the private sector has shifted in recent years. Witness, for example, Palantir, whose principal clients, at least at one point early in the company's life, were federal agencies, including the Department of Defense. Our Hoover colleague, James Mattis, loves Palantir. Why is that? Because Palantir can hire really bright engineers and promote them and pay them well, and they can do a better job analyzing data than the, the Pentagon's data, at least in certain regards, than the Pentagon can do itself. So, now to intelligence in your book. One of the things, I, I, I haven't read the book yet, but I read Harvey Clare's review yesterday, and one of the things that struck me was, he said that you make the point that 80% of what our intelligence agencies do is come through publicly available information. You said a moment ago that Chinese nuclear sites were discovered outside the intelligence agencies. All kinds of people have access to high-grade electronic information. So, I'm just wondering, should we be thinking about pushing more and more work? Should, should our intelligence agencies become more and more simply the writers of checks, pr procurement agencies for private operations that can prove nimbler, hire and promote talent, doesn't have all the work rules and bureaucratic constraints under which the intelligence agencies operate. Is, is there some argument in that direction? Surely, if there is, you'd have found it in writing this book. <laughs> well, Peter, it's, you know, it's, it's a really great point. So, two things, I'd say. One is that, as you pointed out, technology has, traumatic, has dramatically changed the game. So, you have companies like Palantir, Data Miner, um, a number of different startups that are moving faster, able to do things that our government can't do. This is part of a broader, radical transformation of our world, right? So in the book, I talk about how we've never been at the juncture we are with so many um, revolutionary technologies. So think about the internet, social media, AI, for example, mm -hmm. um, the, the proliferation commercial satellites. Think about how you can use Google Maps to find detailed locations in a way that only spy satellites used to do You know, 20 years ago. What does that mean? It means that there is real insight from all this publicly available information that there didn't used to be. Right. Secrets still matter. Even if 80% of a typical intelligence report comes from publicly available information, secrets are still crucially important. And so, in answer to your question, you know, what can the intelligence community do? The, the, the name of the game in the future is open source intelligence. It's going to be foundational, but it has to marry all that publicly available information with the secrets stolen from the prime minister's safe or the intercepted communication. Explain that term, Amy, open source intelligence. I'm, I'm just not sure what you mean by that. Open source intelligence is things that are that are publicly available. So think about oh, Twitter right. feeds, right? Or anything on the internet. So there's incredible insight by bringing all of this data together using machine learning tools and other things. But the challenge is then how can the intelligence community gain insight at speed and how can it do that better than all these other people out there in the world? So the, the point or the, you know, the, the big point that I make in the book is that the intelligence playing field is leveling. There's a, what we call a democratization of capability. 
that anybody can do these things. And what that means is the intelligence community has to get better at hiring technological people. It has to get better at working with private sector companies like Palantir. It has to get better at recruiting uh, the right tools uh, and harnessing the insights from them, using artificial intelligence more to augment analysis. But the secret part of what they do still matters. And so as I tell my students, what do we get for intelligence that we can't get from Google? I think we get a, we get three things. We get the marriage of that open source stuff with the secrets, right? So how do we know that Vladimir Putin was directing election interference in 2016? A human source publicly reported, right, inside the Kremlin. It wasn't just from open source stuff. So that's that's incredibly important, that the marrying of the public with the secrets. The second thing is that the intelligence community tailors that information to what a policymaker needs, right? So um, will that bridge up ahead hold my tank, right? What is Putin going to do? So intelligence agencies are supposed to serve policymakers when they need it, right? right. And then the third thing is they say things that policymakers might not want to hear, right? Those are the um, unwelcome truths of you might not you might not be happy about this, Mr. President, but we think Xi Jinping is doing X, Y, and Z. Um, and you can't get that just from the open source community. So the spy agencies still matter. There's still right. a job for them. Right, right. Rob. Hey, um, uh, thank you for joining, Sammy. It's Rob Long in New York. I got a question. Um, we were told, and I think it happened as, uh, uh, by looking at an org chart, that in response to 9-11, American intelligence gathering and analysis would be radically changed. And org charts got moved around and boxes got created and new bureaucracies happened. And I guess the theory was you have uh, Defense Department intelligence, Naval intelligence, Army intelligence, I guess probably even an Air Force intelligence. And then you have Central Intelligence and then you have National Security. National Secu uh, Henry Kissinger was the National Security Advisor during the Yom Kippur War, during detente, during the opening of China. He had 40 people working for him. There are now over 400 people working in the National Security Council. Um, so my priors are all the reforms we undertake uh, are usually uh, uh, pointless and too little, too little too late. Did we get it right after 9-11? And if we didn't get it right, how do we get it right? We got some things right after 9-11. I agree with you. Um, so we now have 18 different intelligence agencies. And if we look at what was the big problem that led our intelligence community to miss, and I found 23 opportunities to have penetrated that plot and possibly stopped it. Why did they miss it? The right hand didn't know what the left hand was doing. Too many organizations to coordinate. So what did we do? We added more organizations to coordinate. <laughs> yes, that's government. But I mean, when you say right hand, left hand, do you, do you mean, I mean, I, I think there's a lot of ways to interpret that, but could uh, is it one way to interpret that, that the right hand being, um, uh, we'll say, international offshore intelligence and the left hand being FBI domestic intelligence? I mean, are, are we hamstrung by that division? We were, but the FBI didn't know what the FBI had, right? So there were three different offices in the FBI. Each had clues to the plot. None of them knew what the other one was doing, right? So even the FBI didn't coordinate well among itself. So coordination was a huge problem, Rob, as, as you point out. And now we have even more organizations to coordinate. 
So I think that makes life more difficult. But I will say this, after 9-11, what did get better at coordination? Well, we do have a director of national intelligence who is trying to standardize things. We do have a national counterterrorism center, which by all accounts has been a great success after, after 9-11. And we did have more of a marriage between intelligence and military action in the battlefield. Now, that's good and bad, right? Yeah. So one of the um, senior intelligence officials said to me shortly after 9-11, and it, I never forgot it, he said his biggest fear was by the time we mastered the Al-Qaeda problem, will Al-Qaeda be the problem? And what he meant by that, and we've seen this movie, right? Yeah, so we've got right. really good at this coordination between intelligence and the military. What does that mean? We've taken our eye off the ball on China. We've actually, you know, the more that the CIA is hunting, the less the CIA is gathering. And so you can't do everything. So the more we're involved in really supporting the warfighter on the battlefield, the less the Central Intelligence Agency can look at the future and prevent strategic surprise. Right now, how free do you think the CIA is to gather? I mean, by when I say gather, I mean to gather without um, a policy framework guiding what they're looking for. You know, sometimes when you're looking for something, you find it. And when you're not looking for something, even if it's in front of you, you don't find it. Um how free is the central intelligence? How free is the sort of the bottom of the pyramid to gather stuff that may um, contradict the president, a president, any president, may contradict current policy, may suggest that our current policy is a mistake? How free do you think that is? I think it's pretty free. I mean, I'm on the outside looking in, right? So I only know what I can, what, you know, what, I, what I'm able to see from the outside. I mean, um, I, I guess what I would say is, it's um and I and I'm probably leading the answer here. Uh, it, 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 it people always work better, I think, when they really do believe there's an existential threat. So um, I have a friend of mine who's in intelligence business, and I say, so who's who does it right? Who's what's the gold standard here? Maybe in eight, you know in 1895 to 1911, it was Great Britain, right? Because they were you know the great game. They were all over that place. Who does it right? And his answer is, has been for the past 10 years, Israel. Does Israel do it right? I think Israel does a lot right. Israel has a lot of advantages that the United States doesn't, chiefly size, right? So it's a small country. It has national service requirements. So it's able to your, to our earlier point about how can you recruit the best and brightest to go not to Silicon Valley, but the government. Well, there's mandatory service in Israel, so they do get the best and brightest to do service in government. And there's a closer connection between the private sector and the government. You know, here we don't have that kind of close cooperation. It's getting better. But, you know, private sector companies have some incentives that are aligned and some that right. aren't with the nation. Right. And we, we live with that. And that's that's easier in Israel than it is in the United States. Just got to say, if you want your intelligence done correctly, get it done by Jews. And speaking of by Jews, they're one of oh. our new sponsors. And I'd like to tell you all about them. BYJU. If we're talking about BU, that would be perhaps where my daughter's going to school. And believe me, I'm intent on making her experience at college and helping her as much as I can. I always have, because that's what you do when you're a parent, right? You want to make sure your kid has the support and opportunity they need to, to learn and to thrive. But even in the best schools, your child probably isn't getting the one-to-one -one teaching that they need to reach their full potential. In a classroom with dozens of kids, teachers just don't have the time to customize their approach. At Baiju's Future School, Students receive personalized attention and a world-class learning experience completely online to supplement their in-person school education. 
With small group and one-on-one training, Baiju's Future School is committed to helping students become creators and to shift from passive to active learning while building skills they'll use for the rest of their lives. Students receive personalized attention from world-class teachers who are trained to address their unique learning needs no matter what subject they're learning. Baiju's math and music courses help build a foundation of knowledge and self-confidence, too. And with Baiju's coding course, students explore the fundamentals of coding through their favorite games like Roblox and Minecraft. Believe me, if you've ever tried to learn a programming language, you wish there was an easier way, Baiju's will help. They have, have, the kids will have tons of fun, and they'll be learning about the technology that makes modern games and apps and cryptocurrencies possible. Join the millions of parents accelerating their kids' learning today. Right now, Baiju's Future School is offering our listeners their first class free. Just go to baijus.com slash podcast to sign up for your first class absolutely free. That's B-Y-J-U-S dot com slash podcast. And we thank Baiju's Future School for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. Sorry, Rob, I said I was going to let you finish. No, no, that's fine. Uh, so so I, 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 um, I, Israel has another advantage, I suppose, in a, in a weird kind of topsy-turvy way, that it is faces existential threats. Or it, it is a do-or-die proposition for Israel. Intelligence isn't just guiding future policy. It's maintaining its existence on the earth. Um, and I suspect that, what, I guess one of my real question is, uh, I mean, you, you pointed to it with like the idea of solving the Al-Qaeda problem and then missing the other problems. Um, what are we really missing? I mean, we have we have dif- differences in America right now that are profound and intellectual about whether it matters to us if Putin marches into the Ukraine, about whether China is a threat to us or simply it uh, is emerging on the world stage as a great power that we that, that it's something to be celebrated. We don't know yet whether there there are the mu- Muslim fundamentalism is still a danger for the United States. There there are people who think it isn't. Um, how do you gather? How, how do you gather intelligence in a world where you're not even convinced that the intelligence is do or die? Do you know? What I'm, is that? Is that am I, I do. I, I, yeah, I think I actually think that there are many existential threats confronting the nation today, and the, and we have the opposite problem, which is the threat landscape is so bad. And so complicated, how do we triage when there's so much to be concerned about? So if you look at the Cold War, in the Cold War, it was pretty straightforward. It was Soviet Union was number one, number two, and number three. But how do we rank rank the threats, the existential threats facing the nation? That's much harder today than it was in the Cold War. Um, And how do we then deploy resources so that we have the, the right people and the right resources targeted on the right threats? Right. So I think we have, in some ways, a, a much different problem today. Too many existential threats facing the country today. You've listed a bunch of them already. Um, and what's what's supercharging all these threats is new technology. Right. right. So now it's not just great powers have to mobilize troops and we see them coming, which we're seeing in on the Ukrainian border. But it's we can be attacked from far away through cyberspace from people sitting at home using their laptops. That's never happened in human history before. The ability to to, to um, really damage another country from far, far away with such ease, right? Right. Where power and geography don't protect us. This is a completely new world, and it's driven by technology. And the question is, is whether or not we're doing it to them. Because here in the states, we had over Christmas and to this day a profound shortage of cream cheese. 
And it was because hackers in Bulgaria or Iran or Russia or wherever decided to do a ransomware or a, an infrastructure probe on some cheese manufacturers and, and crippled the cream cheese industry for a couple of months. I've been reading up on this. I just wrote about it. That's why I know. And what we like to think is that we respond in kind as opposed to Biden sitting down and saying to Putin, well, here's the 10 industries I really don't want you to touch. Don't even think about it. That we too have our people who can sit at the laptops and respond in kind, that there's this dark shadow war going on in the cyber uh, is that true do we have that skill and are we using it as far as you can tell yes and yes we do have that skill we have very sophisticated cyber capabilities and increasingly uh, the government is talking publicly about the fact that it's using them right Good. so um part of the challenge is what's different about cyber is when you use it you can lose it so if I have an F-16 and I use it, the other side can't turn that F-16 around and use it on me, right? But with a cyber weapon, once it's in the wild, other people can use it against us. So it's a little bit of a different battlefield, but we're much more forward-leaning, right? So the Pentagon has a relatively new strategy the past few years, and it's called Defend Forward, right? It's much more forward-leaning. It's about let's take the fight to our adversary systems rather than just doing perimeter defense here at home. And I think that's right. That's a welcome change. I was talking to a, um, a very smart guy years ago who explained to me without, um, abs without any hesitation at all that there would be a war between Israel and Iran. There had to be a war between Israel and Iran. Iran was getting nuclear capabilities. It was building a reactor. The only way to keep the Iranian nuclear threat um, from harming or threatening Israel was an actual war, bombs. And then about, and, and there was a date at which he was convinced that this war would take place. It had to take place, he said. He was utterly convinced of this. And then, of course, there was a thing called Stuxnet. This mysterious thing that came from somewhere. We know where it came from. It came from Israel. But is, um, are we... I guess the question is, how, how many Stuxnets have we not heard of? <laughs> and I guess my answer, the answer I want is tons. Um, <laughs> but I suspect it's, it's not. And going forward, don't we need more of them? It's a great question. I think one of the concerns is the more we do, the less we control. And there's a worry that we don't understand the escalation dynamics when we wage a cyber attack on something. So what we've seen is we're much more hesitant to do it than the Chinese are, right, which mm -hmm. have stolen our intellectual property for years. We're much more hesitant to do it than the North Koreans are. Um, and we're much more hesitant than the Russians. Is that a good thing or a bad thing? Arguments on both sides, right? We're in uncharted territory. Um, but what we've seen, I mean, I think you're right with Iran, we haven't seen a war, but there's been very active, well, shall we say, lots of activity by our, our friends, the Israelis, and some in concert with the United States to keep that country from getting the bomb, right, mm -hmm. short of war. And that's where all the activity is, is the gray zone short of war. And it, cyberspace right. looks a lot more like intelligence than it does warfare. And yet, if you uh, go into the policy uh, levels of American governments, certainly the ones I think that are there today, um, you find fatalism and a certain kind of acceptance that eventually Iran's going to get the bomb. Um, is that, and I guess that's kind of goes back to my first question, which is how often or how dangerous do you think, or maybe I'm just inventing a problem that doesn't exist, that the policy assumptions drive 
intelligence gathering. I think to some extent that's true. So intelligence agencies aren't free to just muck about and, right. and find things that they want to. They're supposed to answer policymaker questions, but they're also supposed to raise uncomfortable truths with policymakers, right? And so, right. you know, it's a it's an art and a science. I mean, I will say, you know, and I've spent three decades talking to folks inside the intelligence community. When they say speaking truth to power, they mean it, right? They take it seriously. They want to serve every president just like the military does. They're, they're, they don't take sides and serve one president and not another. Uh, and their job is to, is to tell them the ground truth as they see it. Now they get it wrong sometimes, right. but that objectivity that they don't have a dog in the policy fight is really important. Is that Stuxnet, if I believe, was introduced in the, into the Iranian centrifuge array with a chip, that, some code that they hid in a toner cartridge, right? In a printer or something like that. I mean, that, that's how they imported it, from what I understand. Um, and, and, and am I basically right that what, as far as we know? Basically, so so what we know, and I have to be careful, right, it's classification. So what we know right. from what's been publicly reported is that Stuxnet, Stuxnet was like a Mission Impossible movie, right? So there was a way where it st still hasn't been said how that um, this malware was injected into the, the, the um, servers right. that run the centrifuges. A human had to be involved, presumably, right? So there was some human involvement, but made it look like, just like the movies, made it look like the centrifuges were spinning at regular speed when in mm -hmm. fact they weren't and they were spinning too fast and spinning too slowly and eventually they blew themselves apart it was a remarkable so a, remarkable so that, piece of right code. that, that it, it was absolutely and the brilliant idea that somebody said look they got to print off some stuff so let's put it in the chip and the cartridge and the toner or the ink or whatever and that's how we inject it into the system which is fine but then to the same people who are aware of this then turn around and say oh and by the way your router is made in China. Your webcam is made in China. Your drone is made in China. All of these things are, in other words, is there any sort of, in, uh, you know, with these vast tentacular organizations of intelligence gathering that you've been describing, where there's actually somebody who looks at what we are buying and says, let's see if they hid a back door in this, because frankly, China would be stupid not to put a back door in nearly everything that they sold to us but yet we just sort of blithely assume and march along as if they hadn't are they is is and and again that's one of those truth to power thing where you have to say mr president this contract here is compromised because we know who's making it we know their ties to the chinese intelligence and chinese military kill this contract get this company out of our system i, I mean is is that a paramount concern. Yes. Uh, in the yes. Supply chain security, especially for our defense systems, is a big issue. And part of the challenge is our supply chains have gotten so long and they're so opaque that we don't know how bad it could be. Right. So you think about, a, you know, the F-35, how many suppliers are there? And at what point, if in anywhere in that process, was that supply chain potentially compromised by China? This is a huge issue. Lots of people in the government are working on it now, but it is a hard problem to solve because our supply chains are so interdependent. Amy, it's all hopeless, isn't it? <laughs> this is what I don't know. I mean, I'll read the book. I haven't read the book yet. I haven't received my copy yet, but I've read. Harvey Clare's review, and you and I have talked about this before when you were still working on the book, the technology has changed so quickly. Policymakers, maybe more now than is usual, but we have an older generation in charge in Washington. It's These people were not raised, they don't, I mean, let's face it, Nancy Pelosi is 81 years old, she has to have staff help with her 
tapping messages on the iPhone, that they're not going to be quite with it. I, I don't mean to pick on Nancy Pelosi. Meanwhile, China has a sense of morale. It is able to recruit. It's able to tell the best and brightest coming out of this university or that university or this or that engineering program, you, in intelligence. Vladimir Putin has created a totally corrupt regime, but it has this benefit. He controls hundreds of billions of dollars. He can threaten people, but he can also reward people. He can pay people. He can set up little shops in Moscow to cause all kinds of problems with us and make sure that all the engineers, all the Russian kids in that shop are really well paid and taken care of. Is there any any particular advantage, permanent advantage? Second World War, we produced more materiel. We could produce ships. We could produce aircraft. Cold War, you'd argue that our model was more appealing in the Third World. Over time, they'd rather live like us than like the Soviets. What, what kind of underlying advantage do we have now, if any? Well, I'm at root an optimist, Yes, I Peter. know. You're cheerful. This is what I don't understand. How can you write <laughs> that book and then smile? <laughs> and I'm an optimist. Well, I eat a lot of chocolate as I write the book, so that does help. <laughs> Good. But I'm an optimist because I believe in America, right? When we think about the, the best of our country, our free markets, our free peoples, our values, those are enduring. And so would you rather live in China? Or would you rather live in the United States? I'll take the United States any day. You look at the innovation, look at the COVID-19 vaccine, right. right? Look what we did with all of our messiness and all of our disorganization. We produced the best vaccines in the world faster than any other country in the world, right? And so when, we, when I think about you know, technology, we still have incredible advantages. We have to harness those advantages better in the government. That's a challenge. It used to be that technology was invented inside the government, and then it became commercialized. Now it's the opposite. New technologies, new technologies are coming out of the private sector, and the government has to figure out how to harness them. But we're always, I think, we're, we have more allies than China does. China has customers, mm. right? We have allies. That's a big right, difference. Right. And we have and I think that we have values and values are enduring. Um, and so I think you know it feels overwhelming now. It feels like a juggernaut of the authoritarians at this moment, and that the good guys are losing, but it's not going to be that way in the long term. In the long term, I think our values and our freedoms and our capitalism will enable us to win. I like hearing that. Um all right. Your book is called Spies, Lies, and Algorithms, The History and Future of American Intelligence. I am now going to, uh, this afternoon, go, go to the bookstore and order it. I feel like I need to order things in the bookstore because they'll probably buy two copies and then they'll put one in the window. Um, we are thinking about launching in the next couple of weeks a Ricochet members-only uh, book club. Uh, so that would be a great title. So I'm saying this diplomatically because, of course, I want everyone to go buy your book. But you know, spy novels are fun, right? All right, so thrillers are fun. And I know that they're probably made up. A lot of them made up and a lot of them are crazy. And you don't just type into the thing and see the, oh, we're inside the thing and whatever. But it's got to be some of them. And you're like, holy moly, this person's kind of got it right. And I heard years ago, I don't know if it's still the case, that, that people in the uh, intelligence community had a kind of a grudging admiration for a thriller writer named David Ignatius who was a Washington Post reporter, still is, I think. Um, he seemed to understand Middle East intelligence gathering and uh, deception pretty well. 
right. So I'm stipulate. I'm buying your book. Everyone should buy your book. But if I'm going to want to buy the book that I'm going to, you know, the, the spy novel. <laughs> the book. book that you want to read? Is that the what book you're that I, Yeah. <laughs> no, the book that I'm just going to be in the movie, right? What, what, who do you like? Who, if you're going to, I mean, maybe it's a busman's holiday for you, so you don't read it. But who do you think, you know, this person, I mean, obviously it's a book, it's a little fictional, but who do you, you know, who's, uh, who's got it close to right? Well, actually, I think my favorite nonfiction book that reads like a thriller that you can't believe it's real is The Billion Dollar Spy by David Hoffman, who is a Washington Post reporter. And it's a real no kidding story of espionage in the Cold War. Um, So I think, you know, Tom Clancy once said the difference between fact and fiction is that fiction has to make sense. Right. So there is a, there's a (laughs) kind of, right. That's a beautiful line. There's a kind of comfort. I get it. There's a comfort that we get. So I, you know, I take your point that, you know, fiction is usually riveting and more riveting than, you know, nonfiction books by professors uh, from university presses. But I will say this, I think the real world of the intelligence community is fascinating. And one of the things that I really wanted to do, because I wrote this book in part for my students, is I wanted insiders to share what it's like to be them. So I interviewed a number of former and current intelligence officials, and I asked them questions like, when did you tell your kids what you did for Mm. a living? And how did that go? What were the ethical challenges you faced? Because we never hear about those, right? What were your best and your worst days in your job? And they were fascinating discussions. And so I put that in the book because I want people to understand. I said, you know, I'm an outsider, but I want that insider view to come through. And I think there's no more interesting thing than hearing how people work in the real world, serving their country in silence in the intelligence community. I love that answer. Okay. So the answer is you don't need to buy a spy novel, just buy your book. Right. That is the answer. That's I like that answer. (laughs) It's a new world and you can find all about it in spies, lies, and algorithms, the history and future of American intelligence by Amy Seagard. Thanks so much for joining us today. It's been very instructive and also heartening. I did take the truth i feel somewhat sort of kind of better about our capability i feel better <laughs> well, i feel so worse i feel worse <laughs> it feels worse yeah that's right all right I, that's pretty good for intelligence. i work. feel worse amy i'm i have lots more questions so just get ready two out of three ain't bad i'll take that <laughs> <laughs> all right thanks for joining us amy take it, take it thanks so much bye-bye thank you amy thank congrats you. again on the book um i do feel you know peter feels worse because peter didn't get enough sleep um, and part of the problem that Peter's going to have in 2022 is making sure that he does get enough sleep so that he can look at his little d- device and say, oh, good, I may feel tired, but I shouldn't be because my device tells me that I slept well. Well, it's a uh, wellness, right? And there's a wellness revolution going on. Do you want to be part of that wellness re- re- revolution in 2022? Of course, it sounds great, but you know it's hard to know where to start. Getting started at the gym, it's no easy feat. Most of us have already abandoned our resolutions to cut out our favorite treats. I know that I was uh, low-carb for a while, and carbs keep sneaking back as they do. But what if the move to wellness had an easier transition? Thankfully, our sponsor, Beam, the world's most innovative functional wellness brand, can help you with their premium CBD products for sleep. Beam is a functional wellness brand that makes products for sleep, for calm, focus, energy, hydration, and recovery. Here's how it works. Our bodies have an endocannabinoid system. I think Rob can probably pronounce that better than I. <laughs> or or it's, you know, Think of it as a highway of communication between the brain and the body. It's specifically designed to work with cannabinoids, which is why CBD has taken over the wellness world recently. Just mix the dream powder into hot water or milk, stir, and enjoy before bedtime. And today, 
our listeners get a special discount on Beam's sleep product, Dream Powder, their best-selling healthy hot cocoa. It contains natural sleep-promoting ingredients, triple lab-tested, no THC, and you wake refreshed. Find out why Forbes and the New York Times are all talking about Beam, and why it's trusted by the world's top athletes like Danica Pentrick and Baker Mayfield. For a limited time, get $20 off $75 or more when you go to beamorganics.com slash ricochet and use the code ricochet at your checkout. That's B-E-A-M organics.com slash ricochet and use the code ricochet for $20 off. And we thank Beam for sponsoring this, the Ricochet Podcast. Well, before we go here, big dust up boomers versus the new media. Neil Young pulled his stuff from Spotify because they wouldn't deplatform Joe Rogan. The Surgeon General says that Joe Rogan should be should be censored. I don't listen to Rogan. All this stuff makes me think that I probably should, just so I'm up on what it's saying. But uh, other artists have fallen have uh, fallen into line, and they're saying we want our stuff taken off Spotify too, unless you unless you do something about that guy you paid a hundred million dollars for. And Spotify, in every one of these cases, has been saying, <laughs> "Bye, Felicia." I'm leaving the pop culture stuff to you guys. I don't even I can't even tell the difference between Neil Young and Neil Dunn. <laughs> and I just feel like these guys. I mean. All of them have at some point faced people in their, you know, heyday, which Neil Neil Young was many, many years ago, wanting them to shut up and stop talking about politics and take their music off the radio. And, you know, I can go back. I'm sure I can find some some equally, if you you believe that Joe Rogan's nutty, I don't really, he's nutty, but he's fascinating, good at what he does. Um, If you believe that uh, being nutty is a a, a crime... (laughs) Neil Young, how long is it going to take me to find some crazy stuff that Neil Young said? You know, maybe he let a thousand flowers bloom. Well, he had a whole he had a he had a whole album about how Monsanto was poisoning right. the planet, which is anti science. Which is sort of uh, he didn't tr- he didn't, right. didn't right. trust the science exactly. I, it's the same as the rest. Of it. You know, it's of a piece with Howard Stern, who apparently has turned into a cranky old boomer who's raging against those people who are fighting the uh, the state and the powers that be. However, you define it, it's not an unusual path for people today to take as they they creep towards the tomb. But it's just the idea that Spotify would say we need Neil Young more than we need uh, Joe Rogan goes a lot to how the whole cultural edifice of the boomers is. Is, is is built on sand and the sand has been subject to the tides for decades no one really really cares i mean look gutfeld's on top right gutfeld's new i mean it would, it's not a spring chicken but he's not exactly uh, a, a geriatric sort hitting the hitting the geritol new ratings show that uh he's beating the old guard so rob you're a tv guy does this mean that the uh, Tonight Show, as a as a cultural edifice, is, is no longer the powerhouse that it was when 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 Carson had it? I no, no, the, the, of we all know the, the audience is completely fragmented. So, I mean, I, you know, Greg's a good friend of mine. So we, we talked about this for a couple of years. Was he was preparing it, and he was like, he's a nice guy. He's nervous. What do you think is going to happen? I'm, you know, I know what's going to happen. He'll be number one, um, because everyone else is splitting <laughs> the other half of the you know country. So you know, Fallon and Stephen Colbert and Trevor Noah and those people are are, are competing for half, and the other half is going to you. So <laughs> it doesn't the math really works, you know? Right. So there's a rise of new paradigms like Ricochet's Ricochet's desire to be a national public radio for people on the center on the right and center right. And Rob, mm-hmm. I think you have some news uh, that you might want to tell people. 
Oh, yeah. Um, this is, comes from the heading of things we're doing for members. So if you're not a member, uh, you can easily have this be part of your life by joining. Uh, we do a bunch, of, a bunch of little conversations, usually in the evening, very much more personal, not so much political and topical with people that are in, sort of in our orbit. I just did one this week, really, really fascinating one with Eric Erickson, um, who's an incredibly interesting guy. And we talk about everything, and not just politics, a little bit about Georgia, uh, but in general, just about life. Um, and I'm doing one with Ian Harrison, Ian Harrison Ali, uh coming up next week and that will be fascinating because there's it a lot about be. her that we don't um we don't know and it'd be nice to talk to her uh those are member conversations i call them no dumb questions because not because um i'm not allowed to ask dumb questions it's just that every question that i ask is by definition not a dumb question even if it is a dumb question because sometimes you never ask the dumb questions and that's how i want these are usually the things i want to know um and the, the third thing i want to say to people we, we have so much great writing on ricochet as you guys know so many of our members write really really beautiful stuff um and that, again it usually comes from the most personal part of their lives the things that they know about their lives their families their experiences their histories and it's the most edifying thing um I read, and I, we have a friend of, of the company and a friend of, of Ricochet, Michael Graham, and he runs a thing called Inside Sources, which basically is a newswire uh, and has some, I don't know, some astronomical dozens and dozens and dozens of tens and tens and tens of millions of, um, of, of readers across the country in small newspapers that still are read and are trusted by their readers. That is true about small newspapers. Important people remember. You may not trust the Washington Post, New York Times, or the LA Times, or something like that. But if you have a local paper, those local papers are trusted by their readers. Um, and he he agrees that there's lots of great writing in Ricochet. So if you write a post on the member feed, there's be a new little click box as you join, and a little click box there for each post, and you can click and say, "Look, send this along to Inside Source Sources uh, because I want that on their wire." Um, and his only rule, it's got to be about 600 words. Um, and, if, and if it's chosen, you don't get paid, sadly. But on the other hand, you you become an official pundit and a national figure. Uh, but you might need, you need a headshot and a bio. The best things are going to be um, a mixture of personal experience and credibility and politics. So, you know, why do you know that um, Joe Biden's messing up? Uh, more than anyone else. And I think that is something that we at Ricochet Excel at. That's what I love to read. You can go to any uh, other website so, and join it. Which ones give you the opportunity for national syndication? None. Yeah, exactly right. Exactly right. And it's inside source of really great stuff. And he he, he, he approached us with this because he is a fan, uh, uh, not just of Ricochet, but of the members at Ricochet, of which I, if you are one, we are thrilled to be members along with you. And if you are not one, today is a perfect day to join. Absolutely so. This podcast today was brought to you by Boland Branch by by Jews Future School and by Beam. Support them for supporting us. Join Ricochet today. As Rob noted, the benefits only start with what he said. There's so much fun to be had there in the member feed, in the, re in the podcast. It's just go there. Join. What's stopping you? Nothing should at all. Uh, and give us those five-star reviews at Apple Podcasts if you possibly could. It's been fun. Gentlemen, we'll see you next week. Peter, Rob, we'll see everyone in the comments at Ricochet 4.0. Next week, boys. Next week, fellas.